right, so well, let's go ahead and get started tonight. And um, this is part two on the actual judgment seat of Christ section. We looked at rewards the first two weeks. And um, so you should have a you should have two sheets tonight. You should have a note sheet that's front and back, and then you should have a chart. Okay, and we're not going to look at the chart right now. I'll bring we'll bring that out here in a second, but right now we'll just work off the note sheet. Okay, so is we're does everyone have what they need or? Okay, you're getting some, Carl. Okay, what a what a nice son. All right. So again, the definition that we're working off of. Uh, for rewards is this. Rewards are something that are earned. Um, you know, again, in contrast to salvation, which is a free gift, okay, we're making that contrast. There's something you have to do in a certain way to actually obtain uh, a reward, but they're earned by utilizing the gifts and resources that God has provided for us in the Christian life in the right way, at the right time, with the right internal motivations and dependence. And so, as we've kind of emphasized time and time again with rewards, this is not just doing the right thing and just checking it off your list. It's not just about externals. It's, it's largely about internals. What's the motivation? What source are we living life from? Is it from the sin nature? Is it from the spirit of God? It, who's, who's producing these good works in and through us? Is it, is it just us trying to look good? Is there some kind of False motivation or is the Spirit of God actually leading us and are we being empowered by the Spirit of God? Those are what we're talking about here in terms of what's going to be rewardable and what's not. And so last week we started to look at this whole concept about the, uh, the Bema. Remember, it's, we, we hear it Bema a lot, but technically if you're pronouncing the Greek word the way it's pronounced, it's Bema. Okay, so the Bema, judgment of Christ. These are really the three main passages that we find the teaching on the Bema. Uh, it's not, and, and quite frankly, there's not a lot of detail. You're not going to get uh, a ton of detail here. You will get some detail. Um, and so that's what we've been trying to pick up as we go through the study. But these are really the three main passages. We looked last week that, that the word Bema in the Roman world was known primarily as the seat from which a judge passed a sentence in a legal case. Um, and we saw that in the Gospels. This is the, the seat of judgment that Pilate sat on. Okay, and this was a Roman concept of the word Bema. But in the Grecian world, um, it was known primarily as the seat upon which the appointed judges sat as they observed the athletic contests and awarded prizes to the winning contestants. And so that's really, I think, the illustration that Paul's using as he writes to these passages are, are in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and then one in the book of Romans. But I think this is really the imagery that he has in mind here. Um, the reason I say that is, is we've tried to show in the verses, and we'll look at another one tonight, where Paul uses a lot of athletic metaphors. And so I think this is what he's talking about when he refers to the Bema of Christ. Um, <clears throat> as we mentioned last week, there were four what they call great Panhellenic uh, games, uh, Grecian athletic games in Paul's day. Uh, the Olympics were one of them, and obviously we know about the Olympics happen every four years, still going on. But one of the four great Panhellenic games was, um, and that should be capitalized, it was the Isthmian games held. I, I have held in Corinth. There's actually a, a, a town over that's near Corinth. But, so when he's writing to the Corinthians, again, when you're looking at biblical interpretation, you're trying to figure out what did the original author mean to the original audience? And is there a way to understand what he was intending with this imagery? And so that's why I believe he's referring to this athletic contest metaphor for Bema. 
Uh, and so we kind of looked at a lot of those details last week, but for review, um, who was being judged at the Bema? Well, clearly it was church age believers. Okay, we see that it was church age believers that were being judged uh, at the Bema. Uh, what was being judged? Well, again, from the passages, and this is all review from last week, so I'm kind of moving through it. But this is very important because we'll come back to this point over and over again as we continue the study. But what's being judged, it's the believer's works. And then more specifically, it's their good works, right? We looked at that in 1 Corinthians 3 because no other foundation can be laid than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And then men need to take heed how they're building on that. So when we talk about building on the foundation of Christ, we're not talking about sin. We're talking about good works. This is an effort to, to take the foundation and begin to build a superstructure. And this is what we do as believers. We're, we're doing good works. We understand that good works are involved in the Bible. We understand that God's Ephesians 2.10 created us in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And we're, we're his workmanship. And so we understand those things. So we're, we're building on the foundation. This is what's going to be evaluated at, at the Bema. And it's not going to be, did you do good works, but did you do acceptable good works? Did you do good works that are fruit bearing? That's, that's what we're talking about at the Bema. Now, why are they being judged? Well, there, there's going to be an evaluation and there are um, good works that won't make the grade. There are, there are good works that we do that may even look the same as something else that we do, but one's going to be rewarded, one won't be. Because the motivation on this one was, was totally pure. We were dependent upon the Spirit of God and that's going to be rewardable. This one wasn't. Maybe we, maybe we were motivated because, you know, the, the pastor's looking at me. I said, I better, I better do it, you know, kind of deal. It, it looks the same. It's the same good work, but one's acceptable, one's rewardable, one's not. So that's, that's what we're talking about. That's why um, they're being judged. And then what we started to look at last week was what is the negative side? Because when we look at some of these passages, um, you're going to see that there's some kind of loss mentioned or in second Corinthians five ten it says going to be rewarded for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. And so what is this negative side? Um, we started last week and I just kind of said, you know, in terms of when you're not walking in the spirit, when you're out of fellowship with the Lord, there is temporal loss. You experience that in our life. That's you're out of fellowship with the Lord. You might experience natural consequences. I mean, we went through a list of those things last week. Um, but tonight I want to look more at this eternal loss concept um, at the Bema. What's being lost um, lost there? So 1 Corinthians um, 3.15, let's go there. And because this is more of a topical study, we're going to be flipping around a little bit tonight. We're not going to be staying in one passage. So um, I'll try to do my best to keep us abreast of the context uh, as we as we read verses. But this, this whole concept, uh, 1 Corinthians 3.15, is following this, this teaching that we've looked at last week, starting in verse 11. Uh, we'll just read 11 through 15, and that way we'll kind of get a ramp up. Uh, For no other foundation <clears throat> can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If any, anyone's work, which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, 
He will suffer loss. That's the phrase we want to look at. But he himself will be saved so as, uh, yet so as through fire. Okay, so what that's communicating is this evaluation of good works. We see in verse 15 that um, if somebody loses some of their works, they're burnt up, so to speak. Um, do they lose their salvation? I mean, clearly he goes out of his way to say they're still saved, right? It, it, that's what we read in verse 15, but he himself will be saved. So what does he, what does he lose there? What is the, the suffering loss? And so here's, here's what we want to look at is just kind of the meaning of the word and just understand that it's in the passive voice. And it just means that to experience forfeiture uh, or to forfeit something, to have something forfeited. Uh, we see that his works are being bor- burnt up. So what is he just contextually, what are, we, what are we talking about? What is he forfeiting having those works burned up? And I think it's rewards. You know, it's obviously not his salvation. There's no harm comes to him. Um, he forfeits or, or misses out on potential rewards. That's how I would understand that passage and that loss. You know, and it's important to notice, uh, to, to make the comment, that these are rewards that could have been attained. See, that's what's so, what's so crazy about it is he's actually, he's actually done the work, right? He's done the work. He's done the good works. I mean, they're there. They're on the foundation. But, but they're, they're evaluated as unacceptable. So he misses out. He forfeits the opportunity to have rewards. And I think it's going to be noticeable. You know, a lot of people will say, well, um, it, you know, it, it's going to be a noticeable loss. And, and a lot of people say, well, well, if you just miss rewards, I mean, who cares? But I think it's, I think it's going to be noticeable. I think we're going to regret. There's going to be some regret there. Again, this is one of those areas where there's not a lot of detail, right? So try not to speak too much that's not there. But I think it's going to be noticeable. They're going to understand. We're going to understand that we missed out on something. So that's, so that's um, 1 Corinthians 3.15. So let's look at another passage that talks about, again, the negative side of this judgment. What can you lose? <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 5.10. Let's go ahead and flip over to 2 Corinthians 5.10. All right. 2 Corinthians 5.10. Let's read verse 9 leading in. So therefore, uh, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, uh, to be well-pleasing to him. Verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Okay. So we see that concept of good or bad. Um, what's the negative side? Like what's, what's this bad that they receive back? Well, clearly unworthy, sinful deeds merit no rewards, but we're talking about good works and their evaluation of acceptableness here. Okay. So it's clearly sinful deeds won't, won't receive rewards. So he's not talking about that there. In fact, when we looked at these words in another section, remember the, the word good or bad in, in terms of referring to fruit means like uh, ripe fruit or, or spoiled fruit. That's, that's what we're talking about here. This one is, one is an acceptable good work. One is what is bad in the sense of spoiled, unacceptable. Okay. And so again, when we're talking about evaluation, um, remember the, the, the Bama and the athletic games, it was an evaluation of the contestants. You know, somebody won the race, other people lost the race, but the losers didn't get taken out back and, and whipped or punished. They just, they merely didn't receive the, the reward. Okay. And part of the evaluation in, in even the, the athletic games was 
Um, if you recall, who, who did the training of the a- athletes during these Isthmian games? Do you remember who, who actually trained the athletes from last week? This is a comment from last week. It was the judges. The judges actually put them through a 10-month training regimen. And then the judges would observe while they ran the race, did they keep the rules? They would evaluate, did they participate the right way? Did they run it the right way? You know, maybe did they stay in their lane? Um, did they, did they start, did they false start or did they start when the, the shotgun went off or whatever, all, all the different rules and the judges would evaluate all that. And then when they, when they won, the winner would get a reward and the losers would just not get a reward. That was the quote unquote punishment. And anybody that's ever lost an athletic contest, um, you know, you know how it feels when you lose. I mean, you don't need to get beat. <laughs> to feel like you lost something. I mean, you're, you're pretty upset sometimes when you lose because you've put so much into it. And so we talked about good or bad here in 2 Corinthians 5.10. I think what we're talking about is acceptable or unacceptable. Okay, You receive rewards based on acceptable good works or unacceptable good works. You, you lose rewards. You miss out. What they receive back for the type of good deeds judged, worthless uh, and unacceptable is no recompense at all. Okay, not, not a beating, not a punishment. This is the next passage. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians where Paul kind of breaks off again into an athletic metaphor. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Real real common verse used to actually, some people think this teaches you can lose your salvation. Okay, this is one of the verses people will go to for that. But 1 Corinthians 9, uh, let's let's start in verse 24. And again, just kind of pick up this athletic metaphor that Paul's using. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown. Now notice Paul switches here to talking about eternal rewards, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. And so this word uh, cast away or disqualified means um, worthless, disqualified, not passing the test. Okay. So again, just based on the context there, I mean, we're talking about uh, this imperishable crown, what would he be disqualified for? Heaven or a reward? I mean, clearly, clearly it's a reward. He's talking about a crown. <clears throat> He's making reference to this athletic game where you had to follow the rules and, and participate in, in, in the right way, not just win the race, because anybody can cheat and win the race, you know, trip their opponent, run over in someone else's line, but actually follow the rules, do it in the right way at the right time, and then, and then win the race. And then that's uh, evaluated as worthy. And then he, he uses some of these other athletic terms, like the word temperate there. In verse 25, it says, he, he, and everyone who competes for the prize is temperate. Um, it, it uses this word meaning self-controlled. Okay, it's, again, athletes need to be self-controlled, but as believers, we need to be self-controlled. And then he, and then he says, um, in verse 26, 26, therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. And have you ever watched somebody just run like for no reason at all? Kids typically do this, <laughs> you know, and when they're littler, 
um, they run with uncertainty. It's like everywhere they go in life, they're running there, right? It's, why are you running? Why are you trying to get there so quick? Oh, I don't know. I just felt like, just felt like running. And, and so he's saying, you know, imagine if you started a race and, and we'll kind of translate to this Christian, to the Christian life, but imagine if you started a race and the starting line was here and the finish line was there and you just took off that way. That, that'd be running with uncertainty. Be like, why, why are you even running? You know, you're not going to participate in the race. You're not going to get in and actually follow the rules that it's that way. And, and so he's kind of making that comment. I run thus not with uncertainty. In other words, I'm not just running to run. I'm not just doing things to do them. I've got, I'm intentional in what I'm doing. And that's one of the things I think when we, when we think about good works, we, we tend to just gravitate toward doing them un, without any intentionality. No, we're not mindful of doing it. We just kind of go through the motions. They, they just become things that we go through the motions doing. And, and I think what he's saying is anytime you do a good work, do it with intentionality and say, you know what, be mindful that I want to depend upon the Lord in this good work. I want to, I want to trust the Lord in what I'm doing, whatever it is. Be mindful and, and take that time to just mentally say, I'm going to actively depend upon the Lord while doing this, whatever that good work is, so that you can benefit from it. So you're not just running with uncertainty. And then I like this next one. And he switches to like a kind of a boxing metaphor. That's I fight not as one who beats the air. And, and I know a lot of boxers, you know, practice their footwork and punch the air. But, you know, I just imagine if there was no intentionality in that and they're just, you know, swinging at the air. And it's just obviously there's no, there's no purpose in that. And that's, and that's kind of what he's bringing out. And then I think what's, what's just crazy is, um, preach. I mean, clearly when you preach, you're going to receive rewards, right? I mean, that's, I mean, like, like, that's like the height of spirituality, isn't it? Like every, every week, the preacher, I mean, he's going to get rewards for that. Well, look at Paul. That's what he, he doesn't even bring up his sin. It's not like he brings up sin there. He brings up preaching. And he says, lest when I have preached, I myself should become disqualified. So even just preaching doesn't get you rewards. You got to do, you got to preach in the right way. Independence upon the spirit of God. And so I just throw that out there so that we don't, we don't get so caught up. Sometimes we just, as Christians, is so caught up in the doing and we're not even mindful of the doing. We're not trusting the Lord. We're not gaining any benefit for us. We're doing a lot of things. But we're not actually doing things in an acceptable way. And so Paul even recognizes that even in the in the activity of preaching, if he doesn't do it the right way in dependence upon the Lord, he won't get credit for it. He won't receive a reward for it. So it's just anyway, something to kind of put put in your mind there. So again, he wasn't referring to loss of salvation, but rather worthiness in his service as to receive a reward. In other words, what he does with his life in service uh, to the Lord matters and the way he does it matters. Um, another negative aspect that sometimes uh, is brought up, another passage is, is 1 John 2.28. 1 John 2.28. I know you, you probably do this when you study 1 John, but what's really cool about John's epistles here at the, the back of the Bible is a lot of times the Gospel of John is a good commentary on 1 John. And there's a lot of related concepts. You'll, you'll kind of see, I mean, the, you know, though all four of those books were written right around the same time. So there's some related concepts and thoughts, um, as you see here. And so we'll, we'll tie something in here to John 15 here in a second, but look at first John two twenty eight. 
Uh, he says, and now little children abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. And so the fact that, that John gives this exhortation implies what? That there could be some shame before Jesus at his coming for, for some believers. Okay. But again, because it's, it's a passive voice, it, it suggests that the believer is shrinking back from Christ in shame. That shame kind of comes upon him. And those of us, I, we know, we kind of picture what that would look like, you know, where maybe, maybe when Christ comes, we're involved in something that we don't want to be involved in. Or we're involved in something, maybe even a good work, but we've, we had a poor, we're having a poor attitude. And then Christ appears. <clears throat> you know, it's like when you're doing something wrong and, and your parents come home early. And they, and they catch you in the act. You, you remember that feeling? It's just like, oh, red-handed. I just got caught. Um, and so I think there's going to be that, that, uh, that mindset when Jesus comes back for believers who are not um, engaged, not spending their life properly, uh, maybe going through the motions and good works and realizing that their motives aren't right. They're, they're just kind of whatever, going through the motions. And so there's this concept. So I think that's definitely a real concept. Um, again, why would this happen? Well, the cause of shame apparently arises from their, their believers own recognition of sin. And I, I say sin, it could be an act of sin, but it could just be that, that we're living from that source. You know, our, our attitude's really poor when we do things, uh, religious or spiritual service, our attitude just stinks or we're exhibiting unfaithfulness. Maybe God's given us opportunities and we're not, we're not responding and we're just kind of sleeping on the job or neglected opportunities. Um, notice too, I, I think one of the keys to this verse in, in verse 28 is um, that in that first couple of the, the wording there, in that first couple of phrases, he says, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence. So, so what's the secret to having confidence when he appears? It's abiding in Christ. And what happens when you abide in Christ according to John 15? You bear fruit. Yeah. So that, that's what he's talking about here. We're talking about fruit bearing. We're talking about abiding in Christ. And basically what he's saying is if, if you don't abide in Christ, the, the idea is you're going to be out of fellowship with the Lord and you're going to be ashamed when he comes back because you're going to realize, oh, man, I've, I've wasted some opportunities here, even if it's in that moment. And so, uh, again, that, that is a potential ne- negative, I think. Um, side of this judgment is there's going to be times where we're going to realize, hey, we weren't abiding in Christ. Uh, we weren't even in the mode to bear fruit. We were just going through the motions, doing things. All right. And so that's kind of just looking at some of the passages that deal with this negative uh, side of what's going to happen. Again, to me, the, the negative is you're going to realize you missed out on opportunities. There's going to be regret. I think there's going to be shame in his coming for some of those things. Um, and you're going to lose or miss out on rewards. That's the negative side of the, the Bama judgment. And so we started to look at this last week. When, when will this happen? Um, and this, this is one of those, I think, that there's um, some debate. There can be some debate here as to when this is going to happen. But my, my understanding, the way I, I understand it is it's going to occur when I say what we're talking about the Bama. Um, it's going to occur immediately following the rapture and resurrection of the church as described in 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 13 and 18. And um, I think you're probably familiar with that passage, but let's, let's just go ahead and read it. 1 Thessalonians 4, 
um, 13 through 18, talking about the rapture. And he says um, in verse 13, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And so when we look at, um, that just talks about the rapture there. But when we look at um, the time frame on things, you know, this was, we'll just call that the, the crucifixion of Christ. And I'm just going to kind of go out into eternity. Uh, so that's eternity past. Um, and so right here, the, the day of Pentecost and I'm just going to abbreviate, is when the church started. And we find that in Acts chapter 2. And so this is what is known as the church age. And so any, any saint or any believer before Acts 2 were not part of the church. That's, that's a unique entity that started at Acts 2. And it's going to end one day. And that ending point is going to be the rapture, which we just read about. And you notice that, that all the saints that died in this period before this moment, they're going, they're going to rise first. And then all the believers that remain alive at this point are going to follow them and meet the Lord in the air. Okay, so that's, that's the great day that we're looking for. And basically, there's no prophetic um, thing on the prophetic timetable that has to happen before this can occur. That, that, this can happen today. This can happen this moment. That's, that's the good news. That's the blessed hope. That's what we're looking for. But sometime after the rapture, there's going to be a seven-year tribulation period on the earth. Um, and I'm just going to put Christ up here. And at some point, Christ and his church are going to come to the earth and establish a thousand-year millennial kingdom on this earth. And so, yeah, the arrow actually should be pointing right there. All right. So right there at the end of the seven year tribulation. Now, sometime, I believe, between this point here, which is the rapture and the start of the seven year period um, is where I would see the, the Bema happening. And, and if I'm wrong on that, it definitely happens before we come back. And let's look at some verses. I'll, I'll show you why. I would take it again. This is one of those areas where, you know, it's it, there are people, good side, good people on both uh, lots of different sides that kind of have different timing. It's, it's not super clear, but there's a couple of things we can look at to maybe give us an idea. Go to Revelation chapter four. You know, Revelation's a, you know, an, obviously an interesting book. Um, but in terms of the flow of the book, what you've got is you've got seven churches, uh, seven letters to seven churches in chapters two and three. Um, the church is not mentioned again in the book of Revelation until chapter 19. So what happens in between? Well, the tribulation, the seven year period is detailed. And that leads us to believe, and, and that's why we hold to a pre 
tribulation rapture, that the church is not going to have to go through this seven-year tribulation period. So they're not mentioned again after chapter 3, um, but I do believe they're mentioned in heaven um, in chapter 4. Um, and so let's, let's kind of look at that. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 4, um, and I don't have time tonight to probably go into all this detail, but um, this, these 24 elders that we read about in heaven, I believe those, those are representative of the church in heaven. Okay. So, um, again, I may have to explain that another time. There's a little bit more detail we need to go in. Uh, but verse four around the throne, uh, were 24 thrones and on the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and notice this next phrase. And they had crowns of gold on their head. Okay. That's our Greek word Stephanos that we've been looking at for rewards. So they've got these crowns, these rewards sitting on their head. Um, and then jump down to verse 10. The 24 elders uh, fall down before him and sits on the, th- uh, I'm sorry, before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever. And then notice this next phrase. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, um, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things and by your will they exist and were created. And so we see that this, these 24 elders actually take this, these crowns and throw it at the feet of, of Jesus. Okay, so you, you see this group of people who have these Stephanus crowns in heaven in chapter 4. Okay, so that would lead me to believe that sometime between chapter 3 and chapter 4, although not, not identified in the book of Revelation, the rapture happens and then they, they are rewarded prior to this seven-year period. Okay, so that's, that's one way I, I kind of come to that. Another way, um, go to Revelation 19, verse 8. So Revelation 19, 8, and this is, this is um, Revelation 19 is talking about this event right here. When, when Jesus comes back to the earth, following the tribulation to set up his, his thousand-year millennial reign, um, and he's coming back with his bride, uh, the church. And uh, let's, let's read verse 7, the start. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. Uh, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in, the, in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Okay, so it's referring to the church. Their, their clothing are the righteous acts of the saints. In other words, um, this evaluation time period has already happened. Okay, and they've been rewarded. And so that would at least lead us to believe. So it's going to definitely happen between the rapture and the return to, to earth with Jesus. Whether or not it happens before the tribulation, that, that's probably where the debate happens. Yeah. Yeah, they, I would not consider them part of the bride of Christ. Yeah. They're saved. Yeah, they're saved. I believe, yeah, I believe they're going to be resurrected prior to, um, to this, the thousand year period, and then they'll reign with Christ um, during that period. And they'll be a part of that kingdom, but they're not part of the bride. That's a, that's a unique entity that started at Acts 2 um, and finished at the rapture of the church. It's comprised of Jew and Gentile. Um, a lot of uniqueness to the church age, you know, indwelling Holy Spirit, sealed by the Spirit, etc. So, yeah, good question. Okay, and then one, one other thing we'll kind of look at um, just in terms of time frame. Again, you know, I wish, I wish that uh, there was a scripture that would just really button it down for us, but it, you're kind of putting some of these together. But 2 Timothy 4.8 um, talks about 
this reward that's associated with that day or the Lord's coming. So it's, again, it's kind of looking out toward, you know, this, this time frame in history between the rapture and, and at least the, the second coming of Christ. That's 2 Timothy 4.8. says, finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Again, there's that, that word crown again, which is a reward, which the Lord, the righteous judge will give me Give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who loved his appearing. And so he's kind of looking forward to, to that day in the future. Um, and then 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Again, just a couple of general verses on this topic. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. So 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes. And so you're you're looking at a coming there. Now, whether or not he's referring to when the Lord comes in the clouds and we're raptured or when he comes back to the earth, you know, that's that, again, probably up for debate there from some people. I would probably, I would view it more as when he comes in the clouds for the rapture. That's how I would understand it. So therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Uh, then each one's praise will come from God. And I believe that's a reference to rewards. Each one's praise. We're talking about believers here. But notice what he's, he's revealing there. He's bringing to light hidden things of darkness and reveals the counsels of the heart. So again, this internal motivation concept of, of what the Lord sees um, when we're doing good works, not just that we do good works. And so ultimately, your life matters to God, what you do with it matters to God. And so that's, you know, what we're looking at as it relates to the Bema, what's going to be evaluated, why it's important to, um, you know, walk by means of the spirit and just don't, don't spend any minute of your life just coasting along and just saying, ah, whatever, it's going to be okay. Um, it's very, very important what you do with your life. I'm going to ask you real quick to go to the, the chart that I put out, um, out here in the second, we'll just kind of all I wanted you to do is just have a real quick um, comparison and contrast between the different future judgments in Scripture. So we're looking at just future judgments. There's a lot. I didn't. This isn't comprehensive of all the judgments in the Bible. This is just kind of looking at these future judgments um, that a lot of people get confused. And so I just kind of wanted to put them in a chart. And so um, you'll notice down the left side of the chart, you've got the name of the judgment. You've got Bema. You've got Great White Throne. You've got um, sheep and the goats, which a lot of people are like, oh, we're going to be there for sheep and the goats. But um, next column is who is judge? Well, you'll notice in the Bema, it's going to be church age believers only. Uh, the great white throne, it's going to be unbelievers of all ages only. So only unbelievers at the great white throne. Um, the sheep and the goats judgment, it's going to be believers and unbelievers of the tribulation age. So when we look at the sheep and the goats judgment, we're looking at the judgment of those people who were not raptured at this point in time. Oh, I'm sorry, I've got the wrong, uh, who were not raptured at this point in time and who live all the way through the seven-year tribulation period and make it to the end. Now, there's going to be believers who get saved during the tribulation period that are going to make it, that are going to survive to the end physically. There's going to be a lot that don't. They're going to get martyred. Um, there's going to be some unbelievers that make it to the end of the tribulation period, but there's, there's going to be a lot that don't. They're going to get killed with everything going on in the world. And so, in fact, when you start doing the math, this is going to be massive world, um, I mean, death. 
There's going to be a lot of death in the tribulation period. But some people are going to survive all the way through that period. And they're going to make it to when Christ returns. And that's when the sheep and the goats judgment happens. And so we, we see that in Matthew 25. So who is judged? What is being judged? At the Bema, what's being judged? What's being evaluated? It's good works. Um, at the great white throne, notice this pattern, by the way. What's in the what's being judged category? It's works, works, and works. That's what's being evaluated. But for the believer, notice it's good works that are being evaluated. For the unbeliever at the great white throne, notice it's their works, but also what else is being evaluated? Their righteousness. And they don't have the righteousness needed to get to heaven. And and God's going to show that to them through their good works. He's going to open those up and say, you wanted to get to heaven on your works? Okay, let's look at them. Do you have enough righteousness? And and they're not going to have it. Um, And then the sheep and the goats, there, you'll see in that uh, evaluation that it's what's being judged is the works and treatment of the Jews during the tribulation period. You know, when Jesus says, he who did it to the least of, of my brethren has done it unto me, that's, that's not the mission of the church in our day. You'll, and I, I hate to pick on certain denominations or religions, but like that's, that's like the Catholic mantra on TV. You know, like we're going to feed the hungry and we're going to, you know, we're going to give water to the thirsty. And when we do it to these, the least of these, we're doing it for Jesus. That's a, that's a tribulation passage. That's, I mean, when you look at the passage, it's, we're talking about the tribulation. We're not talking about the church's mission right now. In fact, what's the church's mission right now? It's disciple making. Yeah. It's the great commission. It's evangelism, disciple making. Now, should we attempt to care for people's physical needs if we're able to? You bet we should. I mean, that's what, that's one of the, the beacons of light in a church. But in terms of that being our main mission, it's not our main mission. You know, we, we get distracted often and part of it is because of that passage. But, you know, the, the works and treatment of the Jews, if you look at that chart during the tribulation period, all, all that does is it's, it's going to reveal who's put their faith in Christ or not. Because it's not going to be popular to take care of the Jews during the tribulation. In fact, that, that right there could cost your life. And so this is going to be reflective of believers who have valued uh, the Jewish people, who have valued their Messiah, who put their faith in him. So it's just going to kind of expose, I, I believe, where their faith is. Now, what are the potential outcomes of, of these judgments? For the Bema, uh, the outcome is rewards or not rewards. That's the outcome. Rewards, not rewards. Uh, the outcome for the great white throne, uh, there's only one outcome, eternity in the lake of fire. That's, that's what Revelation 20 says. Um, the potential outcomes for the sheep and goats judgment is either you, you enter the millennial kingdom or you're, you go direct deposit into hell uh, awaiting the great white throne judgment. Okay, so that's, that's the deal. And when we talk about um, great white throne, we're talking about sheep and goats. So if the Bema is here, um, the sheep and goat judgment is here, and the great white throne judgment is here at the end of the millennial kingdom. So again, you, if, if you're in the sheep and goat judgment and you don't make it into the kingdom, you get deposited into the hell, you get resurrected to appear before the great white throne judgment. Um, which again, that doesn't turn out well for anybody that's there. Yeah. So that passage you're talking about, that's Matthew 25. Yeah. We're going to look at that in more detail, but it's, it's in that context. In fact, um, no, no, let's here, let's really quickly look at it because I think it, I think it, yeah, I think it proceeds right before it. Verse 14. 
And see, he, <clears throat> here's what we're going to, and, and we won't address it fully now, but I think it's a good question. So Matthew 25, 14, here's one of the things just as we interpret that whole pat, that whole section 24 and 25, the key phrase is verse 14 for the kingdom of heaven is like, and so, so what we're talking about is this, this lead up to, and I believe when we, when he says the kingdom of heaven is like, he's talking about this kingdom. And so all of, all of these parables leading up, you've got um, the parable of the, the foolish virgins right before that. Um, you've got the faithful servant, the evil servant. You've got um, even further back, like in 22, the parable of the wedding, uh, wedding feast uh, in, in chapter 22, verse 2, the kingdom of heaven is like. Um, that's just a key to, you know, talking about entrance into the kingdom and kind of a role. And so, yeah, we'll, we'll deal with that further. But also, since we're there, look at verse um, 31, which is really where the sheep and goats, sheep and goat judgment is. Um, And notice it it gives us a time frame to expect when the Son of Man comes in his glory. With all the holy angels with him, and then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. And so what is that? That's telling us it's going to happen right here at at his coming, the sheep and goat judgment. So, but yeah, those are the, those are things that we'll look at really closely over the next probably three, three weeks. Yeah. Um, and then f- just finally on that chart, when, or that chart, when does it occur? Um, we looked at the Bema. I think it's after the rapture, before the tribulation, you could make an argument. It's after the rapture and before the, the millennial kingdom. Okay. And that's before the second coming. That'd be fine. Um, Great White Throne, Revelation 20 is, is pretty clear. It's going to happen after the Millennial Kingdom, after this thousand-year reign. Um, and then Sheep and the Goat, we just looked at. It's going to happen at the Second Coming. So after the Tribulation, before the Millennial Kingdom, that's when the Sheep and the Goat Judgment. So just keep that as a reference. Um, that's just more for your, your reference, just to compare those judgments, because sometimes that can get confusing. You know, what, what's going on at this judgment? Who's going to be there? Who's not going to be there? Um, so just, just thought that would be a real quick reference chart for you um, going forward. Now, one of the things that I, and Andy kind of provided a good segue here. One of the things that I want to look at really the rest of the study, now that we've tried to study rewards and, and Bama judgment, ho- hopefully from a biblical perspective, and we've kind of looked at that uh, the number of different passages. One of the things that I wanted to do going forward is I, I want to look at these different views of um, negative consequences from the Bema. Okay. Um, you know, what an interesting wedding photo, huh? Um, but the reason I, reason I, I, there's a reason this photo's up there. It's not just random. In fact, I, there's some different views that people even in our camp, what I would say our camp, those who believe that you're saved by faith in Christ alone, that, that hold some different views of what the punishment aspect at the Bema is. Okay, so just kind of want to introduce those to you. And then we're going to spend the next uh, three weeks looking at those, those views in more detail. Um, but one of, here's, here's why the wedding photo is up there. One of the, one of the views is that, um, that basically there will be some believers who are not appropriately dressed um, at this wedding banquet in the future, this wedding banquet of the Lamb. In other words, they're not in robes of faithful, righteous works. They don't, they don't have the proper dress to be there. 
um, at the wedding banquet of the lamb and thus they will be removed from the banquet. Um, they will be bound and cast into outer darkness. Okay. And that's what some people are teaching. I, I put some, uh, some footnotes on your notes so that you could see, and I, I hesitate to call out name. I'm not really not trying to criticize anybody. I'm just trying to objectively point out who is teaching that view. Okay. And some people, you know, you know, some of these names, um, I mean, guys that I, I think, well, one, one guy, I don't know the other two, but I, I think very highly of Charlie Bing. Charlie Bing's been very influential uh, for me, and in, in his book on Lordship Salvation was very meaningful to me um, as, a, as a believer. Um, but Zane Hodges is another name that you might recognize. That he's put out some good stuff as well in terms of free grace, and then Bob Wilkin as well. But these, these guys hold to this, to a view that's related to this, this, this um, wedding feast exclusion. And so you'll notice, um, and, and we'll get to this in a second, but we're going to talk about this whole concept of outer darkness. Now, those of you that have read the Bible before, do you, do you know what the typical view of outer darkness has been? Just kind of the orthodox, consistent, conservative view of what outer darkness is? What did it mean? Anybody take a guess? Hell, separation from God. Yeah. And so there's, but there's a new, there's a new breed, a new group that think that outer darkness is where unfaithful believers are cast, either missing the wedding feast or this next view. Some even believe that they're kicked out. They're not even in the millennial kingdom. Unfaithful believers. Yeah. 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 There's lots of problems with it. Well, we'll be looking at that the next three weeks. Yeah, I'll show you what they say. Um, but, but this view holds that unfaithful believers will lose entrance into the millennial kingdom and be banished for a thousand years. Okay. And, and so these, un, so they teach that unfaithful believers will be not a part of the millennial kingdom. They'll be in outer darkness, um, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay. Well, <laughs> There's a few, I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring them up on the board. Yeah, I'm going to bring them up on the board. So let me, let me just say out of the, the shot that I, I categorically disagree with this view. So I'm not even going to leave you wondering, like, if I agree with it. I totally disagree with it. Um, I, I have a big issue with it. I think there's, anyways, yeah, I'll get into it more. But if you did agree with it, then everything you would say on I know, it just doesn't fit. I know. Well, I know. It, it really is a message that I, I think is inconsistent with grace. I mean, I just, it's very inconsistent. So we'll, we'll do our best to try to look at each passage uh, in context and try to, and try to teach it as such so that you, so you'd have confidence too that, okay, this, yeah, this is not a good view um, at all. So um, anyways, yeah. So, so good questions. Um, here's the passage. Let's just talk about outer darkness here and then we'll, um, I'll kind of move through this. The outer darkness passages, if you want to write those down, um, all of these passages, so this is the only three places it's mentioned in the Bible. Okay, it's mentioned um, Matthew 8, which is um, in context of of Jesus healing uh, a centurion's servant. Okay, so it's mentioned there. Matthew 22 is, is the wedding feast, uh, these invitations to the wedding feast. And then 
Um, this guy shows up. He doesn't have the right clothing on. So they bind him and cast him into outer darkness. Um, and then Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, you know, he gives one person 10, he invested, he makes another 10 or I always get that wrong. He gives them five, right? And he invests, he invests five, he gets another five. One guy gets two, I think. And then, yeah, and then he invests it and gets another two. And then one gets one, buries it, doesn't make anything. He gets cast into outer darkness. Those are our three passages. And so the people that hold this view say that those passages are about church age believers and represent unfaithful believers in Christ. And thus, if you're unfaithful uh, at the Bema, you will be punished by being cast into outer darkness. That's, that's their view. And again, if, if we understand the, the Bema as an evaluation of good works, not a punishment of sin, right? We've already determined that your sin's not being judged at the Bema. Why do we know that? Well, because Christ already paid the penalty for our sin. That, that penalty has been paid. So it's, it's not that sin is being evaluated. Their good works are being evaluated. So why would, based on that, why would somebody get cast in the outer darkness? Because they didn't do enough good works. I mean, I don't, I don't know what the, again, I don't know what the punishment is. So anyways, th- those are the passages mentioning it. Um, weeping and gnashing of teeth are also mentioned. Um, not only in those, they're all, they're mentioned always in the outer darkness passages, which are those three. But this concept of weeping and gnashing of teeth are also mentioned in these other, um, these other passages. By the way, Matthew, 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 one reference in Luke. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, so, so Matthew's context is going to help a lot to understand this. And that, but it's, that's a key observation is, you know, what's being communicated there in Matthew? What's, what's he communicating there? So, um, so again, just kind of introducing this tonight, outer darkness, um, define, uh, you know, you don't really gain anything from the definitions, but I put them up there just in case you wanted to know, um, outer means outer exterior. Um, one thing that's interesting in all the passages, it's articulated with the word, the, the outer darkness, the word darkness, again, don't gain much from the, the meaning darkness, physical or spiritual. Um, this too is articulated the outer, the darkness. Okay. So it's, um, why is that significant? Well, um, really since both words are articulated, it seems to indicate a specific and unique place. Okay. So it's not, I don't think he's necessarily just referring to something figurative. I think because he, he def- makes it unique by saying the, the, he's talking about a specific place, um, in these, in these passages. Um, and since the context of these passages is entrance into the kingdom, it does seem that the outer concept seems to apply to being outside of this kingdom. Okay. So in terms of what do we know about outer darkness, it's, it seems to be outside of the kingdom. It seems to be a specific place. I would say that place is hell. That, that would be my understanding um, of it. Yeah, that's, and that's what I mean. Yeah. Well, yeah, Hades is the, the, the entire compartment of which was comprised hell and paradise. Yeah. So, but right now there's only one compartment because paradise has been cleared out. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So Hades. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Abraham's bosom. And, and that's Abraham's bosom or paradise. It's when it still existed. 
But once, once Christ died and rose again, then he, then he led captivity captive. He took him with him to heaven, and, and, that, and that was cleared out. Paradise was cleared out at that point. So now when, when believers die, they don't go to Abraham's bosom. They go straight into the presence of the Lord. And so that's, yeah, so it's good, all good stuff. Um, the who and what of outer darkness. So, again, who is subject to this? Um, some would say that this place is a synonym for hell. Uh, it is only for unbelievers. That's the view I would understand, uh, would take. Others would say that this place, uh, that this is a place for unfaithful church age believers as a punishment rendered at the judgment seat of Christ. The million dollar question for those who teach that this is a punishment for believers um, is what's being judged at the Bema? What, what do they understand as being judged? Um, is the believer's sin being judged or are their works being evaluated? That's, Really, I think what the issue comes down to now, everybody who's ever um, taught this outer darkness concept for believers will will initially tell you that it's works being judged at Bema. But somehow they they start to kind of trickle in sin or unfaithfulness being punishable. So I don't I don't know how they I don't know why or how um, they do it. It makes sense to them. It just has never made sense to me. If it is sin being judged, then why did Christ die? Right. The, The propitiation of Christ and. Uh, it just doesn't make any sense. So if Christ paid the penalty for all our sins, then how could our sins be brought back up at the Bema since they've already been judged and paid for? Um, and then if it's works, then what's the believer being punished for? Is he being he or she being punished because they don't have enough valuable good works? I mean, what's the, what's the punishment here? And then how does that relate to the athletic metaphor that Paul used for Bema? See, everything starts getting just out of whack when you start going that way. And just to kind of to close tonight... Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I just want to start with verse 16. So verse 16, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord um, unless we're cast into outer darkness, right? So, I mean, that, that's one of the passages I think they would have trouble with um, because it says there that when, and this, and this is going to comprise the entire church. This event in 1 Thessalonians 4 is going to comprise every church age saint that's going to appear before the Bema. The dead, those who have died in Christ, those who are alive in Christ, that, that whole church is going to be um, meet the Lord in the air. And, it's, and then it says, and, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And, and so those who are teaching outer darkness are teaching, you know, yeah, you'll, you'll be with the Lord, but then you're going to be separated from him. But, but don't worry, you're still kind of in his presence. You're just kind of off to the side a little bit. I think they did just a lot of song and dance to kind of try to make that work. But again, I don't, I don't see how it, it is in line with 1 Thessalonians 4. Thus, you shall always be with the Lord. So, yeah, yeah, looking in the window. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're still in the kingdom, but you can only look through the window. So you can kind of see it. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of little illustrations that they use. And it's just like, I, I don't understand the need. I just don't understand the need for it. Um, anyways, all right, so... Let's end there tonight. We'll talk 
starting next week, we'll start looking at some of this outer darkness passages. We'll start kind of just working through those together. Any comments or questions before we close? All right, let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word. And uh, Lord, as, as we just sit here and think about our acceptance in your sight, we're just so thankful for Jesus and what he's done for us by dying for our sins and rising again. And uh, we're grateful to know that we're accepted in him, uh, that our ticket to, to heaven uh, is based on his, his merits and his alone. And even, Lord, our entrance into the kingdom is part of our inheritance, not something that we earn per se. And so uh, we're just grateful that that's part of our inheritance based on who Jesus is. And so uh, we're just thankful to be able to study this. Obviously, Lord, our heart's desire is to more consistently apply your truth in our life and depend upon you day by day and moment by moment. So just pray that you'd remind us of your great truth, the provision uh, that you've made for us and freeing us from sin's power. Uh, may we rest and, and count upon that truth in our life. And may we just walk by faith, presenting our members to you on a moment by moment basis. And I pray this in Jesus name. Amen.